0: Cast episode thirteen. For this episode, we're going to be talking all things related to nuclear weapons, Armageddon, radiation, and nuclear war. This is Doctor Strange Pod, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Movie Muse. Joining me in my underground nuclear bunker are Gordon Sinclair, hello, Matt Corn, boom, <laughs> and Simon Burton, hello. I'm Graham Mason and I'm your host for this podcast. First up, over on MovieMuse.net, most interesting feature come up recently is that we have started a challenge. The MovieMuse team has set itself the challenge of watching 500 different films between the four of us over the course of the year, which equates to roughly 10 films each month per person. Every new film we watch will be rated and given a short review as part of our new MovieMuse database, which also contains reviews of everything Gordon watched last year and the various box set and film club reviews we've done over the past 14 months we'll be updating this database regularly and giving a monthly roundup of all the films we've watched picking our best and worst movies of the month so if you have any suggestions out there for films you'd like us to watch then please leave a message on our website or post on our facebook or twitter feeds also on the website there's an article on golfing games and all the latest three-view movies of the week as usual So what have we been watching? And first of all, over to Simon. Simon, what have you been watching the last few weeks?
1: I'm just catching up on things that I've been watching since before Christmas, to be honest. Uh, I've now into series four of Morgan Mindy. I've been enjoying that. Didn't see it when I was a kid, not really much of it. I was quite young when it came out. So yeah, I've been enjoying that. It's actually pretty good, good characters, better than I expected it. I watched Die Hard again a week or two back. I hadn't seen it for quite a while and then I missed it at Christmas, so I thought I'd watch it again. And yeah, it was just great. It's a Christmas movie par excellence, so still always think of that as sort of part of Christmas, and obviously things to watch for this podcast, which I won't talk about right now. So that's it for me.
2: So, next up, it's Matt. What have you been watching lately? Well, the answer is a lot because of our Movie Muse 500 challenge. I've already watched over 20 films in January alone. So plenty to choose from. But the ones I'm going to pick out is one film I've never seen before and one that I have. Firstly, the one I haven't seen before is a film called Just Before I Go, which is a 2015 film directed by Courtney Cox of Friends fame. Her feature film directing debut, in fact, and it stars Sean William Scott as a man who feels that his life has been a waste of time and decides to kill himself but not before returning to his hometown to face the people that he feels caused his terrible life including his high school teacher that was mean to him, an old school bully and his overbearing brother. Inevitably when he gets there he finds some of those people have changed for the better and also meets new people that make him reassess his choice to kill himself. It's a comedy drama that has some very funny crude humour but then also has some quite emotional reflective moments and I think as a result of that it's got really terrible critical reviews 10% on Rotten Tomatoes and 24% on Metacritic but perhaps the 6.4 rating on IMDb tells you that it's not quite as bad as the critics made out although it's pretty easy to see why they wouldn't like it as those two kind of styles of film together is a bit jarring at times it'll go from quite a funny crude scene to a more emotional one it's a little bit odd at times but what it does do is give Sean William Scott the opportunity to finally shake off his Stifler typecasting which he's had for over 15 years and prove that he can act in a more of a restrained role although there is this crude humor in it he's actually not part of that he's more on the sidelines it's a very understated performance from him and it has got some terrible moments on the comedy side but also some really funny ones there's a scene early on that's a proper laugh out loud funny scene and i enjoyed it overall and i'm going to give it three and a half stars the other film I watched recently was Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. I got most of the Terminator films on Blu-ray for Christmas and I'm working my way through them. And obviously everyone knows what it's about. I'm not going to go into that. What I don't understand is why people think this film is crap. I think it's a really good film. I really enjoy it. I don't see anything particularly bad about any of it. I can come up with three possible reasons. The first reason people seem to come up with is it's not as good as the first two, which is true. But that doesn't mean it's a bad film. Personally, I think the story is actually better than Terminator although the action part's on, and the ending is undoubtedly the best in the series. I think the way it kind of inexorably progresses to this conclusion that they can't get away from, that the war is going to start, whether they try and avert it or not, I think is really good. The other thing that people don't seem to like was that Edward Furlong didn't return as John Connor. Well, firstly, that was his own fault for being an unreliable screw-up, but I do think that Nick Stahl's John Connor is a bit of a wimp, but I also like the way he plays him as a man with the weight of the future on his shoulders, a guy who knows what he's destined to do, but doesn't really want to do it. And the other thing I think people don't like about it is Arnie's really quite funny in it and I can see why some people wouldn't like that because it's a film that ends with nuclear armageddon which fits our theme quite nicely but I really like the added humor to it and I think it is after all the third part of a silly sci-fi story so why not add a bit of humor to it so I really don't think it's much worse than Terminator 2 and I'd give it three and a half stars I'd give Terminator 2 four by the way
3: i think you're spot on there i really enjoyed terminator 3 and even when it first came out and i watched it i wondered why it was getting such hatred but then again i thought the same about last action hero and everybody hated that too
0: yeah i would agree as well i don't understand why rise of the machines get so much stick i really enjoyed it as well so, i mean it's obviously not as good as the first two films but they're pretty hard acts to follow weren't they so no good solid third entry i think
2: well, we all agree on that. Then it's just everyone else that's wrong. Yeah, much better than Genesis anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, they've got progressively worse. But I still enjoy all of them because I just love this whole concept of the Terminator and the time travel and stuff. But I think watching it again just made me more angry at the people that don't like it because I just think it's a good film. It's not a classic, but you know.
0: Thank you, Matt. Gordon, what have you been watching lately? my uh, first film
3: is Hacksaw Ridge. It's Mel Gibson's big comeback as a director and it's a wartime biopic about the first American conscientious objector to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honour for his services as a field medic during the siege of Hacksaw Ridge in Okinawa, Japan, during World War II. Andrew Garfield plays the lead, an awkward, God-fearing man who flips out while protecting his mother from his drunken father, sticks a gun in his face, and then the realization of how close he comes to committing the biggest sin sees him vow never to pick up a gun again which obviously causes a few problems when during world war ii he enlists to join the army there's a reasonably long boot camp part to the film and they try to inject some comedy into this with the introduction of vince vaughn as the drill sergeant but i think it backfires and i find it hard to see past his wisecracks whenever he's on the screen and i can't really see him as a serious actor but following numerous attempts to get the main character, Desmond, to quit the army because they see him as a liability in battle due to having no firearms training because he won't pick up a gun and refusing to even carry a weapon. But he does end up going to war and is single-handedly responsible for saving dozens of lives. The action in the second half of the film is absolutely excellent and it shows how comfortable Mel Gibson is with action and violence. I'm not sure that he's that great with drama, though, the first half of the film does drag on a little bit and similarly Andrew Garfield plays the war scenes really well and very believably and taken on their own I can see why he's already been nominated for a BAFTA and he's likely to be nominated for Best Actor Oscar as well but his gauntless civilian acting just really put me off and although I can see that the character that he's playing was supposed to be gauntless, he just came across as a poor actor if I'm honest and his hair really put me off as well but overall it's a very good war film that could easily have been a great war film with a bit more quality away from the action but one last point on this film is that it was really evident how obsessed mel gibson is with fiery death and i just wonder whether that's him worrying about what's going to happen to him when he finally dies and whether he's going down to the fiery depths of hell himself because he lingers on these flaming deaths in the film and it becomes uncomfortable and it just seems a little bit odd that he's so obsessed with that scene. So that's my first choice, Hacksaw Ridge, and I would give that three and a half stars. Anybody seen Hacksaw Ridge?
2: No, but I like that you didn't like the guy's hair. <laughs>
3: Honestly, watch the film,
2: and I'm sure you'll
3: agree. My second film is called Under the Shadow, and it's an Iranian horror film that tells the story of a mother and daughter in war Tehran during the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, and when the husband is conscripted into the army, the mother and daughter try to live a normal life but when a missile hits the building and the girl falls sick, fears of a supernatural entity called a djinn materialise and it's a very real life horror film in that people are going about their normal business rather than like stupid teens going off into a deserted graveyard or into the woods at midnight and it's pretty much a quiet kind of not a lot happens film which as I've mentioned before are the kind of films I really love Um, but couple that with it being subtitled meant that it takes more concentration than a normal film you know not a lot's going on it's very quiet anyway and you're concentrating on the screen so the few jump scares that are in it seriously hit home and one specific scare it's top of my list now is the best jump scare ever and I actually fell off the couch when that scare happened and that's the first time that's ever happened where I actually ended up on the floor i won't spoil anything about it because i do hope some of you all watch it i'm sure that the fact that the film is iranian and that it's subtitled means not a lot of people will watch it but i do really recommend it i'll give under the shadows four stars and if anybody is interested it's on netflix
0: okay cool some interesting choices there thank you very much i've watched um, a couple of things of note recently The first was a film that's been on my unplayed shelf for some time. I've studiously avoided it, picking films either side of it to watch. But I finally got round to watching Barbed Wire, which was an adaptation of the Dark Horse comic from the mid-90s. Dark Horse were mainly known for comics based on film properties. They did a lot of comics based on Aliens and Predator. And they were generally very high quality, but when the comics exploded in the early 90s, they decided to release their own imprint of superhero comics. And this was one of the more successful lines, although like all of them, it didn't last too long. And it concerned the lead character of Barb Wyatt, who was a mercenary type character who owned a bar in a neutral city, in a sort of like post-apocalyptic world. And the film adaptation came a few years later and starred Pamela Anderson as the titular character, with all the assets that you would expect she'd bring to the film, of which much note is made and much exposure is revealed as well. And... <laughs> It's a strange film because obviously it's very trashy. The plot is virtually identical to the classic film Casablanca in that two characters, an ex-boyfriend and his wife, come back into Barbed Wire's world and need help in order to escape from the city. As I say, it's quite strange because obviously Pamela Anderson can't act to save her life. She does actually perform some rather impressive fighting moves. She's obviously, either beforehand or during the film, she had a lot of instruction because she does some Pretty nifty fighting moves throughout the whole movie and the supporting cast is pretty reasonable as well most notably Xander Berkeley who plays the grizzled police chief which is a character identical as well to one that was in the original Casablanca but yeah generally it is quite trashy and the plot's a total rip-off as i say i found it fun enough but i do still find it hard to give it a high score because it was just so derivative and also quite sexist in parts as well so i would give Barb wire two out of five have you seen Barboire? No, I haven't seen it. Well, it's worth catching for interesting reasons. but not much. Yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> it's one of them you'd find hard to convince your other half that it's a good one to sit down <laughs> and watch, really. Isn't there it? is
0: there is one scene where Pamela Anderson's in the bath, and first of all, she's got one of those special see-through baths that you only seem to get in movies. Unfortunately, she's used, or unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint, but she's used a lot of bubble bath, and this character, her ex-boyfriend, manages to wander in undetected and suddenly appears, and she sort of jumps up in shock. And there's like an extremely tactical amount of bubble bath all over her body, just as she stands up. It's full of gratuitous scenes like that. But I, I suppose at the end of the day, if you're casting Pam Anderson in a movie in the mid-late 90s, that's what you're going to do, isn't it? absolutely and the second thing I've watched I've watched an awful lot of Doctor Who lately again like the movies I've got a lot of Doctor Who DVDs that I bought ages ago that I've never got around to watching and I had a look at the ones that I had left unwatched and I think this gives you an idea of the sort of Doctor Who series that I like they're all classic Who so it's from the mid 80s and earlier and five out of the six series left to watch were all involving the Daleks because I always thought the Daleks I never really understood why people got that scared about them because they were a bit crap they couldn't go upstairs or anything like that and I never understood the fear factor of them so I decided it was about time I should tackle some of these Dalek stories and the one I watched was called Destiny of the Daleks which was the last one before there was quite a long gap where the Daleks didn't appear because the producer of Doctor Who in this time kind of agreed with me I suppose and didn't like them much as a villain but in this story the TARDIS as usual it goes to like some completely random location which just happens to be Scarrow the home planet of the Daleks and the Daleks are busy excavating the planet or searching for something which turns out to be Devros, their old leader and the Doctor obviously finds this out and manages to persuade Davros to go back into uh, some suspended animation and therefore be stuck again until this next appearance, which I think is not for another four or five years. So it's a fairly basic story, there's not a lot to it, like a lot of Doctor Who stories, which I always think is a bit bizarre, considering he's basically a time traveller. There's not really much of a time travel element to the story, and it kind of chugs along to its inevitable conclusion. What is a little bit bizarre is that some of the antagonists in it, which is a race called the Mervillons, which actually turn out to be robots as well. They're uniformly played by black actors, and they all have these ridiculous dreadlocks on, like these silver dreadlocks, which just look utterly silly, and it really takes you out of the story a lot, especially when you consider they're robots. I mean, who builds robots with silver dreads? It's just ridiculous, really. So, apart from that, it's a decent enough story, but it kind of does highlight a bit why I don't particularly like dialect stories in Doctor Who. And of course, as with a lot of the 70s episodes, it takes place in
2: some quarry in england somewhere as well
0: so that's destiny of the daleks and i would score that two and a half out of five
2: Yeah, I'm not a massive Doctor Who fan, but I never understood why the Daleks are so terrifying. I think they might have been in the '60s, but once you got to the '80s, I'm thinking, well, robots are kind of commonplace, and you've seen, you know, the Terminator and stuff like that. Mm. The Daleks are a bit shit in comparison, really, aren't they? I'm kind of the opposite. I'm
3: not a fan of Doctor Who at all, and never have been. But I've always found the Daleks quite scary, and I think a big part of that is the voice. And if they didn't have that voice, you know, if they just did a few um, R2D2 bleeps and bleeps. I'm not sure I find them scary But yeah, the threatening way they shout at people I found them quite terrifying when I was younger
2: I always found the Cybermen more intimidating
0: I would say that Davros scared the shit out of me when I was younger Because he looked like this some sort of bizarre mutated creature And he looked Mm. horrible So he was probably the thing that scared me the most But in this story, he's voiced by a different actor And this guy's voice is just far too high-pitched To be menacing enough And that kind of spoils it a little bit as well Okay, so thanks guys. That's what have we been watching. Next up we've got Coming Soon. This is the section where we look at a movie that's due to be released soon in the UK that we're particularly looking forward to. Gordon, what are you looking forward to? The film
3: I've chosen that's coming out soon is Free Fire. It's uh, directed by Ben Wheatley and starring Enzo Cilenti, who was in Gardens of the Galaxy and Game of Thrones, although I've never seen that. Sam Riley, who you might remember as Joy Division singer Ian Curtis in The Fantastic Control. Irish born actor Michael Smiley, who's in a number of Ben Wheatley's other films and Oscar winner Brie Larson. So there's a pretty good cast there. And it's set in Boston in 1978, where an arms deal between two Irishmen and a gang who selling the moustache guns goes spectacularly and explosively wrong. And when shots are fired during the handover, pandemonium ensues. I really like Ben Wheatley. He's only made a handful of films, but all of them have been fantastic. I've seen them all. And some of them, like Sightseers and A Field in England, are absolutely superb. All of his previous films, though, have been low budget and English based. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he's taken to Hollywood and the bigger budgets. I did read a short interview with him about the film, and he said one of the main reasons that he chose the 70s setting was to remove mobile phones from the equation. Stating that mobile phones have had a big impact on drama, as it's so easy now for people to call on backup, that it's changed the narrative of films. And I found that quite interesting. Free Fire was released to a few festivals at the back end of 2016 and it's had some absolutely fantastic reviews. So it definitely looks like it's going to be one of the highlights of the year for me. It goes on general release on the 31st of March. And there are some preview screenings from the beginning of March.
0: Simon, what's your pick for coming soon? There's quite a lot coming out, and one that sort of stuck out for me, and this
1: is my retro nostalgia head on again. I'm not holding my breath on this one. There's no big stars in it, and I'm not sure whether it's going to make a difference to whether it's going to be any good or not, but I'm looking forward to the film adaptation of the 70s TV show Chips. It's the Body Cop thing, written and directed by Dax Shepard, based on the 70s television series of the same name, created by Rick Rosner. The film stars Shepard as Officer John Baker, who was originally portrayed by Larry Wilcox in the TV series, and Michael Pena as Frank Poncharello, who was portrayed by Eric Estrada. I loved Chips as a kid, still do, I still watch the 70s TV series, it's part of my growing up, I just love watching that on a Saturday and so it's just sort of stuck in my mind that you know, a film adaptation, not got high hopes for it, but might be fun, might be good, might bring back a little bit of the nostalgia and bring it up into the modern day, so yeah, that's just sort of the one I'm looking forward to about the ones that are coming in the next couple of months.
0: Thank you Simon. A film I'm looking forward to is called The Founder, which is a biographical drama directed by John Lee Hancock who's not a director that I'm particularly familiar with but this is the story of Ray Kroc who you may know he was the founder of McDonald's, along with a couple of other characters in the film. I just think that this is a sort of film I really like. I presume it's going to be fairly true to life. It will no doubt take a few liberties with the truth, in the interest of drama, as these sort of films usually do, but it does really sound like my sort of film, although I have absolutely no interest in eating at McDonald's. It's obviously quite a phenomenon throughout the last few years, so I'm very interested in finding out more about how the fast food restaurant chain came about. It stars Michael Keaton, who's a favourite actor of mine as the main character Ray Kroc Nick Offerman who I'm not familiar with but I think Matt might know because I believe his breakout role was in Parks and Recreation and another character called John Carroll Lynch who again I've not heard of and those three play the three founders of McDonald's so the film opened in America in December 2016 and it's due to open I believe in the UK on the 17th of February so yeah that's what I'm looking forward to the founder anyone else heard of that
3: i'm well aware of the founder i've been looking forward to that film for quite a while there's been a lot of buzz about michael keaton's performance and that it could be finally the time that he gets his oscar they do expect some big things from this film and it's a really interesting story i've read up a little bit on Ray Crock and it does sound like quite a fascinating story
0: so yeah i'm really looking forward to that one okay now over to matt who's got our trailer pick for this episode matt what have we got
2: Well, looking at the films coming up for the next few months, there wasn't a lot that interested me. I was going to pick Logan, which is the final film starring Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, which is out early March and looks like it could be quite good, but that was a little bit too far ahead. I wanted something that was coming out sooner. So I then had a look through upcoming UK releases and found this film called Prevenge. Written, directed and starring Alice Lowe who has appeared in quite a lot of British TV and film comedies and a few horror films. One of the films she was in was Sightseers, which Gordon mentioned earlier, directed by Ben Wheatley. So she's definitely got the right background for the film based on what she's done so far because she stars as a recently widowed pregnant woman who goes on a murderous rampage seemingly encouraged by the voice of her unborn child. And what's particularly interesting about this was the film was shot while Alice herself was heavily pregnant, so the bump is a real bump and obviously Obviously some of the way she acts may well have been brought on by her real pregnancy. It's already had a limited release in 2016 at a few film festivals and received good reviews much like the film Gordon was talking about and it has its UK theatrical release on February the 10th. So let's take a look at the trailer. I'm really sorry about your loss and I know it's been very difficult for you. At the end of the day, you've got this force of nature now
3: inside you. Baby knows what to do. Baby will tell you what to do. It's just nature's way. I think nature's a bit of an arse, though, don't you? You're getting better at this. I'm not in control. Don't want to know what's in there. I'm scared of her. I would swap her to have him back. She
2: can't hear you. She can.
3: If it's Fanny you're after, you've come to the right place. I'm on the dark side. Ah! You would not believe what I've been doing recently. Very efficient with that one. I was wondering if I could talk to you about child charity.
2: You're insane. I am a working mother. Children these days are really spoiled. Like, mummy, I want a PlayStation. Mummy, I want you to kill that man. <gasps> Listen to the
3: sound
2: of my voice. Baby knows best. You're a real bad girl.
3: Negativity's not good for the baby's spirit, really. do you think?
0: Okay, so that's the trailer for Prevenge. Gordon, what did you think?
3: As I said earlier, I really like the film Sightseers, that Alice Lowe co-wrote with the director Ben Wheatley and acted in and that was a similar kind of film I think where it's a murderous rampage that's brought on by very mundane things and it's basically an accident that they get away with so they end up killing some more people and it's a really good, very dark British comedy and I'm really hoping that Alice Lowe's been able to carry that over. I think the fact that she's actually pregnant and playing a pregnant person and that it's the pregnancy that's driving the killing is just absolute genius and I absolutely think this is the kind of film that only the British could come up with. I've read a number of previews about the film and it's another one that I've been really excited to see. Thanks, Gordon.
0: I'm quite similar to you, Gordon, but I do have some reservations because it seems to me, obviously it's not a Hollywood-type film, really, but it's got a real high concept to it. I mean, we've all seen those Killing Spree movies in the past. It always brings to mind Death Wish, which were movies that I never particularly got on with. I just hope it brings a bit more to the table than just that concept. It does look as if it does, to be fair, from the trailer. It looks a really interesting film, but, you know, just having that concept isn't good enough. It has to really take it somewhere and have basically just a point and some decent plot to it as well. But yeah, the fact that she actually is pregnant is really interesting and should make it quite authentic in that respect. But I just have some reservations about it. But I probably will watch it. And it's an interesting choice, certainly. Simon?
1: Yeah, an interesting choice. I didn't think it was particularly great by looking at the trailer itself. didn't find anything particularly interesting about it. Maybe it's an interesting idea that a baby is talking to its mother and controlling her mother from before she's even born. It's sort of an interesting concept. The film, from looking at the trailer, didn't really excite or appeal. But it might be worth thinking about doing it when it's been out, maybe watching it on telly or whatever. But can't say I'd be excited about watching it in the cinema. I wasn't particularly interested in it, to be honest.
2: I think the most interesting thing about it to me is the name of the film, which on the face of it is terrible, but then when you see the trailer and you realise what it's about and this whole concept of prevenge and it's the baby of someone who's recently died and you wonder whether there might be some concept about it knowing who was responsible for the death of its father or something like that. I don't know, I just like the idea that the name of it suggests something more than just what's going on in the trailer, so I thought that was quite interesting. I think that is a
0: really good twist to it, and it does make me wonder how the film's going to go, because there is this thing, isn't there, about women communicating with their unborn children, whether that is a concept that's going to be explored on a psychological level, or whether there will be actually some supernatural twist to it.
3: I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned these kind of murderous rampage things and you mentioned the film Death Wish because when I watched the trailer it made me think of a different Michael Winner film, Dirty Weekend. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. But that's the kind of film that I was seeing when I was watching it so that was quite interesting that we both went to Michael Winner. Isn't that always the way? (laughs) This is the Wartime Broadcasting Service. This country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Communications have been severely disrupted, and the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known. We shall bring you further information as soon as possible. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this wavelength, stay calm and stay in your own house.
0: This episode we're going to be talking nuclear weapons, radiation and nuclear war. On the morning of the 6th of August 1945, the United States dropped a nuclear bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, hastening the end of World War II and introducing humanity to the concepts of nuclear armageddon and apocalyptic scale of destruction. These scenarios have been played out evocatively in both film and television over the years and predominantly play on our fears of destruction as well as the oft unsubstantiated side effects of radiation. In cinema, there are plenty of famous examples. Early dramas include films such as The Day the Earth Caught Fire from 1961, in which nuclear tests throw the Earth into a collision course with the Sun. On the Beach, the 1959 adaptation of the Neville Shute novel, which depicts a slowly dying world after nuclear Armageddon of World War III, and most famously Godzilla from 1954, in which atomic tests awaken a giant prehistoric monster that threatens to rampage across Japan with a complete lack of irony. There was even comedy, thanks to Doctor Strangelove and its enduring image of Major Kong, played by Slim Pickens, riding a nuclear bomb all the way down to its inevitable explosive conclusion. As the Cold War heightened, the themes changed, but the threat remained familiar. Planet of the Apes presented a fractured Earth hundreds of years after nuclear war, while War Games welded the power of nuclear missiles to the rise of home computers. The nuclear accident movies also became prevalent with films such as The China Syndrome based on a real incident at Three Mile Island foreshadowing real nuclear accidents that would take place over the next three decades. As you might expect, TV shows have lent themselves to smaller dramas focused on the effects of nuclear war on individuals or small groups. Perhaps the most famous and depressing of these is Threads, the 1984 BBC drama that depicted the effects of a nuclear winter in the UK. Presenting an all too plausible scenario of international tensions and conflict, perhaps in the cold light of 2017, such examples of the power of destruction in our hands should be heeded even more than ever. In video games, nuclear power has been demonstrated in strategy games such as Balance of Power and the 2006 game DEFCON, while post-apocalyptic scenarios are plentiful and best known with the Fallout series of games. Our film club choice, related to the theme of course, the choice I made was the 1954 movie Them! with an exclamation mark. Them is a story about giant ants in New Mexico who have been mutated by early atomic tests. Directed by Gordon Douglas and starring James Whitmore and James Arness as the square-jawed heroes and assisted by father and daughter science team Edmund, Gwen and Joan Weldon. This is a classic Cold War nuclear paranoia film and was indeed Oscar nominated for its special effects. It's set, as I said, in the New Mexico desert where two police officers discover a child wandering around and soon they find out that giant ants are attacking the locals. An FBI agent teams up with one of the cops. With the support of the two scientists, they aim to destroy the colony of ants in the middle of the desert. Unfortunately two of the Queen Ants have flown away to Los Angeles and there the story takes president as they start a huge colony in the underground of the city. So it's regarded as a classic of the horror stroke sci-fi genre but what do the movie muses make of it? First up Gordon.
3: I really enjoyed the film overall but strangely it was the introduction of the giant mutated ants that killed the film for me when the ants were found I thought that the characters and the relationships which had been great throughout up until that point were just lost in this silly animatronic or uh, however they produced them I know it's a big part of this type of film is to put these crazy monsters in and in the 50s maybe they looked semi-believable but it kind of lost the reality of the film for me and I was really enjoying it until then because I thought it was a fun and light-hearted police procedural and I really did enjoy the interplay between the characters the quality of the effects and the dumbing down of the story and even the dumbing down of the performances once the ants came in meant that I really did cool in the second half on the film but I did really overall enjoy it and I'd still give it a respectable three out of five I just wish they could have carried on more of what happened in the first part of the film rather than the actual monster horror that they tried to turn into
0: Thank you, Gordon. Matt, what were your thoughts on then?
2: I thought it was well acted and the characters were quite good, like Gordon said. And although it got a B-movie story and undoubtedly influenced all the terrible B-movies that followed, it didn't really seem to be a B-movie itself. It was made to be a very serious film at the time. The best character for me was the grumpy old scientist played by Edmund Gwen. He had some funny moments, including the bit early on in the helicopter where he wouldn't operate the radio properly and everyone was getting a bit arsey with him. I also found he came up with a lot of completely outlandish theories that were just accepted by everyone without any kind of proof. So he'd come up with all these theories about what was causing these problems and everyone just go, yeah, you're probably right, which I thought was a bit silly. And there were quite a few silly plot holes in it. For example... If the ants were all attracted to the sugar, which was a recurring sort of theme throughout the film, then why did they never eat it all? Why was there always some sugar left over? And also the guy trying to rescue the kids at the end, he said he couldn't shoot the ant because it was too dangerous and he might hit the kids, but then he tried to do it anyway. So there's a bit of sort of bewildering decisions made by some of the characters at various points. But my main issue with it was where were the ants? Considering it was a film about giant ants, they were only in it for about 15 or 20 minutes. In terms of screen time, obviously their supposed presence was mooted throughout the film but they actually only appeared on screen for a very small amount of time and the rest of it while Gordon found that quite compelling I found it quite boring exposition lots of characters talking to each other and not a lot happening and the ants like Gordon said the special effects they were just terrible I know it was the 1950s but if you look back almost 20 years earlier at King Kong that had better special effects and Ray Harryhausen was doing his stop-motion stuff by this point as well, which was light years beyond these terrible animatronic puppets. So that was really annoying, and the noise that they made was really irritating as well. So you've got to put it into context, I suppose. At the time, it would have been exciting and you know, almost terrifying at the dawn of the Atomic Age, but with that no longer a serious threat... Unless Trump has a bit of a mad day, much of the film's message is pretty obsolete now. So overall, I was a bit bored by it and we're not impressed by the effects. So it's two and a half stars from me. Thank
0: you, Matt. Simon, what were your thoughts?
1: I actually really liked it. I love this kind of 50s, dawn of nuclear age, and these kind of B-movie style horrors. I know this wasn't really meant to be a B-movie, but that's the way it came across to me. Like Gordon said, I like the interplay with the police and the moment when they and they get to that caravan, see the holes in it, and it's all builds up to suspense. I like the fact they leave it quite a long time before they bring the ants into it. I didn't think they were that bad, the animatronic, and, you know, I'm just trying to think of it's 1950s, you know, we're so small today CGI, I just think they weren't bad for what they were, especially when they come up over the top at the very first time you see them, and the head comes out and the mandibles are going, and it didn't look that bad to me, it was still pretty scary stuff for the audiences of the time would look at. The noise was irritating, but it was sort of added to it, because they, they hadn't come into the scene yet, you hadn't seen them, and you just hear all this noise, you think, oh, what the hell, what's going to happen, and you just got a bit more tension out of it. The plot line of them taking off and flying was good because obviously that's what ants do and it was good that they got away and they went somewhere else so you knew it wasn't the story. It was just blown up in the desert and that's the end of it. It was a bit predictable that they reached a city like LA and it was obviously a bit convenient they end up in the sewers. They could have made more of the city, maybe had the ants out in the streets and actually caused a bit more of a panic than just being down in the sewers and getting destroyed
0: pretty quickly, to be honest.
1: But all in all, I thought it was a classic style horror for its time and I actually really enjoyed it. I'd give it a three and a half out of five.
0: Thank you, Simon. My thoughts on Vim. it was my choice. There's a couple of reasons I chose it. Obviously, it fit in with the theme. But the second reason was when I was younger, I didn't really have a lot of choice on TV. There was no YouTube or anything like that. So I ended up watching a lot of black and white movies, usually they're on BBC Two at six o'clock on a Friday or something like that. A lot of them looking back at the age I was, maybe I shouldn't have been watching them, but I remember watching them very clearly and being absolutely terrified of it as a nine-year-old, but afterwards thinking it was the best thing since sliced bread. So wishing to put my son through exactly the same as, as I went through, I actually said to him, would he like to watch the movie? And we did. And he's just about to turn nine as well so it seemed quite a nice circle for him to experience it as well so first of all my thoughts on it I kind of agree with Gordon in as far as I think the start of the film is absolutely amazing I think the suspense and the tension and although we've all agreed the sound that the ants make is a little bit on the irritating side I think the tension it creates is quite amazing really and when I was watching it, I was feeling the hairs on the back of my neck as this sound was coming out and knowing that the ants were nearby and the tension as the police officers inspect the destroyed caravan at the beginning and discover the little girl and then introduce the scientists thought that was all brilliantly done and for the age we all know how films from this sort of era can be quite poorly acted or overacted in some cases I think the acting was superb and I really got really into the movie but then of course I agree with Matt as he's pointed out uh, you do try and think back and think it was the 50s but the stop motion animation had already become prevalent at this point and films like King Kong the special effects are much more realistic than this a lot of the time it was just the ants sort of sitting there obviously dummies and just just someone operating their mandibles or whatever you call them from behind and that was all that was happening so the special effects i think although at the time quite intense did leave a little bit to be desired especially looking back obviously a few years later but overall i found the film terrific from start to finish Again, it lacks a bit of steam towards the end and the ending is a bit predictable, but I really, really enjoyed watching them again and I would give it four out of five. And interestingly enough, my son also enjoyed it a lot and considering it was a black and white film, which I didn't think he'd like. And indeed, he pointed it out as soon as it started. He said, why isn't it in colour? I said, well, because the world was in black and white back then. And he didn't fall for that one. But he made a number of points about it, which are quite valid. And perhaps the most interesting thing he said about it was after about half an hour, he said, why is everyone smoking? And it made me realise yeah. that a lot of these these days, you don't get a lot of smoking in them. So, yeah, <laughs> And everyone in them is smoking all the time.
2: Good for you then, will not it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did like the appearance of the famous Los Angeles River in the film, which obviously we've seen in films like Terminator 2 most notably since. It's obviously a very well-used cinema location, so it was nice to see it in that Mm -hmm. film. It was in Greece as well, wasn't it? Yeah, The uh, drag race or whatever in Greece, so yeah. Does anyone know if that was the first appearance of it in a film or not?
3: If any of our listeners can think of a film from earlier than 1954, was it? Then let us know. That gives an average score of 3.25 to yep. them, and that puts it sixth on our leaderboard between
0: Reanimator and The Secret of Kells.
2: Definitely better than The Secret of Kells, but it's definitely not better than Reanimator, so I think that's fair.
0: Thank you guys for your opinions on them. Next up is our nuclear themed TV show, which is called Jericho, and I'm going to hand over to Matt to introduce us to this program.
2: Thank you, Graham. Jericho was a 2006 TV show produced by CBS Television in America and it focuses on the small town of Jericho, Kansas, whose residents witness a distant nuclear explosion which turns out to be the city of Denver and they must deal with the aftermath of that explosion. They soon learn that other major US cities have been destroyed by further nuclear attacks, the source of which is unknown certainly at the start of the TV show. It stars Skeet Ulrich, who you probably know mostly as one of the two killers in the first Scream movie. He plays Jake Green, who returns to the town just before the attacks to visit his family, and seems to be the helpful hero of the piece, even though there seems to be some suggestions of a dodgy background to the character. And it also stars Lenny James, who you might know from another post-apocalyptic TV show, The Walking Dead. He plays Rob Hawkins, a former cop who has just moved to the area, and certainly seems to know a lot more about the attacks than he's let There's also plenty of familiar faces from American TV shows which will have you reaching for your phone every few minutes to see where you recognise them from. A few interesting facts about the show. The series was cancelled after one season but brought back due to intense pressure from fans on the internet and CBS officials said the campaign was the largest the network had seen using digital means to protest a show cancellation. So it was genuinely from fan complaints that it got picked up for a second season. It was actually cancelled again after a short run of about seven episodes in the second season, but the story is still continued with the third and fourth seasons being done in comic book form with involvement from the original writers of the TV show, so they're continuing the story in comics because no one would carry on producing the TV show. A film version was also rumoured in 2009 but is yet to materialise. The American TV Guide rated it number 11 in their top cult TV shows of all time. And every episode has a different Morse code message played over the opening titles. So if you know your Morse code, you can decipher those. And some of them give away clues as to what's going to happen in the episode. And some of them are just random words, apparently. So we all watched the pilot episode. I thought it was pretty enjoyable. It introduces most of the main characters quickly and the reaction to the nuclear attack is fairly convincing. You can tell there's more going on with some of the characters almost immediately and that makes it interesting enough to want to continue watching along with finding out what caused the attacks and how the residents cope with the aftermath of the attacks. So what did everyone else think of it?
3: Although it's only 10 years old, I found it to be really, really dated. And in my mind, the release of the series Lost back in 2004, something like that, that kind of, for me, it was the catalyst for changing the face of American TV in the UK, where it introduced the multi-branching stories where lots is going on and you get different cliffhangers at the end of each show and whole new stories start branching off in all different directions. And it felt to me that Lost was kind of the catalyst for all of that. And Lost came before this, and I only watched the first two episodes, but I found them so linear that they felt really, really dated. And I just don't think that really cuts the mustard these days. So maybe if I'd watched it back then, when those kind of multi-branching stories were pretty new, I might have enjoyed it more. But I watched the first two episodes and despite what Matt says about it having enough to keep you interested and wanting to find out what's going on, I found very little to keep me interested in what was happening outside the town or actually caring about what was happening inside the town. There did seem to be a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of episode two and maybe I should have given it one more episode before I gave up. But these days I've got so much to choose from to watch that two strikes was all I could give it and I gave up and really can't recommend it.
0: My thoughts are quite similar to Gordon's but maybe slightly different. I've watched this now and I didn't watch it back in the day. Obviously it came out shortly after Lost and Lost was a huge hit, certainly the first season was. But I think whereas Lost was good in as far as it introduced the multi-strand plots with all different characters who are mysterious and keeping you hooked week in, week out. The problem with Lost is that it lost steam. And by the end, it was obvious they didn't have a clue what to do with it or how to end it. And watching Jericho now, I have watched the first three or four episodes, I think, was an incredibly frustrating experience. Because after a fantastic first episode, which set everything up really nicely and gave you lots of interesting characters, the acting was a little bit patchy in places i'm never really going to accept skeet Orich as a proper actor i'm afraid but there was some good interesting stories going on but by the end of the third or the fourth episode there was just things being hinted at and it was obvious that hardly anything was going to get resolved quickly and that this series was going to be you know like a slog and at the end of it you just still have not a lot of idea about what's going on you would just be teased by it all throughout the whole series and i just don't have the patience for that anymore lost has unfortunately taught me that you know you don't get rewarded for that sort of thing if you tease someone and the expectations go through the roof the ultimate reveals are never going to be a suitable payoff so having watched the first episode and really enjoyed that and watched a couple more i'm unlikely to watch it anymore although as gordon admitted if i'd have watched it back in the day i might have given it more time but after having been burnt by the style of loss i'm afraid jericho started to bore me a little bit too much after three or four episodes fair enough simon
1: I watched it quite a lot when it came out, especially for the first series, and I haven't got into the second yet, and I didn't go as far as that when I watched it originally. So Overall, I enjoyed what I've watched so far. I've done about 15, 16 episodes of this series. What I like about it is the nuclear pot, especially at the start, obviously, it's well handled but then it's very differently portrayed because the actual bombs explode in the distance. There's no devastation. You see a few grainy things on a TV screen. They see and they have an answer phone message. Then you hear the bomb goes off on this answer phone and it just suddenly gets cut off. And the bombs are just in the distance. So you're not getting all the glory of the absolute destruction and fire and brimstone and all that stuff. And that makes it interesting that you don't know what's going on as much as they don't know what's going on. I suppose, like Graham said at it Lost, it's drip-fed to you and I think it's obviously done deliberately to keep you watching and so you can get more and more of the story, so you've got to try and unravel what the characters were about. You get some backstory in some of them and flashbacks and what they were doing in the past. The story branches out but it brings you back in again because you've just got to find out what the characters are about. you can have to try and find out what's going on by watching more and more, to me that's the whole point of it to be honest on the whole i like it the stories do get a little bit predictable you know bad guys turn up they have to deal with it there's a bit of a fight and then it's all right next episode it does get to a little bit like that as far as i've got there's not a lot of feeling outside and what's happened But the thing they just still don't really know what the actual situation is all they know is that certain cities have gone they know new york survived They only found that out in about two episodes ago so that's up nearly 14 episodes in the characters are okay i don't think there's actually outstanding characters i think they all work well together but there's no one where you really look at i think that's well thought out characters they're all probably just what you call these little smaller town American sort of residents. I think on the whole, it's not a bad series, but it does take a lot of watching to get to the end and to actually find out more and more about it. And I presume the second series is pretty much the same. I think it will spread out further. You'll get more what's happened away from the town. And to get to the end of what particularly Hawkins' character is about is what I'm going to keep watching. So I probably will go on from here. I don't know if I'll go through all the series, but obviously yeah, the comic book one, I won't. But the next TV one, I'll give it a go. So, yeah, I've seen better, but the nuclear situation in the storyline, drip fed in, is keeping me interested.
2: Okay, well, I didn't really talk about later episodes. I only talked about the pilot, so I have watched a few more episodes of it myself. It does obviously expand on the characters' relationships with each other and introduce a few intriguing situations. What I found a bit strange about it is the residents all seem to deal with the situation in an unnaturally calm way. They're just kind of going about their normal business, even though they've got no power, and, you know, the water's contaminated and all this kind of stuff. They're just sitting around in a bar waiting for things to get better, so that was a bit strange. I suppose the background of the two main characters Skeet Ulrich and Lenny James. That's probably the most interesting hook to keep watching but after four episodes it did seem to be verging into sort of soap opera territory with one guy's having an affair with a lady who works in the bar and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure whether I'll persist with it to the end. I'll probably watch a few more just to see how it pans out but with it being cancelled after little more than a season I suspect most of the loose ends are resolved badly or not at all.
0: I must admit so, I find it bizarre that this internet campaign should bring back a series like this. You know. I've all TV series that get cancelled
2: i don't think that sort of thing would work now i think the networks are too focused on advertising revenue and getting a big audience you know there's been much better shows since then that have been cancelled after one or two seasons and have had absolutely no chance of coming back i just think it was early enough in mass use of the internet for it to make a difference then but 10 years on i don't think anything would have a chance of that now
3: i find that quite odd anyway all of these campaigns because one of the networks ran some kind of voting system where fans got to vote back one series and i remember the series chuck which was brilliant the first couple of series but then it just dragged out into this really dull no comedy anymore no thrilling storylines and twice it won this vote and had two new seasons done and there were still just the same old dross coming out each time so i do find some of these internet campaigns i'm not sure that people are voting or campaigning for the right reasons sometimes some series just need to die from what I saw of Jericho, that's one that did need to die. and I can't say I'm sorry it did. But one thing I would say is Simon made a great point about the fact that the explosion is far away. You see the mushroom cloud, but what we normally picture from anything with some nuclear devastation is we get to see these beautiful explosions and colours and skin being ripped from bone and buildings collapsing and everything. We didn't get to see any of that and it didn't suffer for it. The actual first episode was really good and I thought they did a really good job of the main theme is some nuclear explosion and they almost ignored it other than it happened. So whilst I'm not a fan, I give them a lot of credit for that first episode and the way they managed to make something exciting about not showing you the explosion.
0: Right guys, so we've talked about Jericho. Are you going to carry on watching it or are you going to stop watching it? Simon, continue or stop? Continue. Gordon, stop. Matt.
2: Continue but
0: probably not for long. <laughs> I'm stop as well. So that's two stops, one continue and one continue but not for very long. <laughs>
2: I'll give it a few more episodes.
3: That means that Jericho is bottom of our leaderboard for TV shows.
2: <laughs> Out of two.
3: <laughs> yeah. Up against the Emmy Award winning boardwalk Empire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Next up, it's our soundtrack, and it was Gordon's choice for this episode. Obviously, it's related to the theme as well. And Gordon chose the soundtrack to the animated film When the Wind Blows. So, Gordon, would you like to tell us a bit more about why you chose this?
3: When I think of the potential for nuclear destruction, there's two films from the 1980s that always come to mind. One, as Graham mentioned earlier, is the mockumentary-style threads. But the other is the animated weepy, When the Wind Blows, and both give a horrifying vision of the impact of nuclear war on the UK in particular. But despite its less realistic take, it was When the Wind Blows that always struck with me the most. It's based on the graphic novel by Raymond Briggs, who also obviously did The Snowman and The Snow Dog. And he's got a newish film, Ethel and Ernest, that's out at the moment. And Ethel and Ernest is a biography of his parents, And it's by watching the recent Ethel and Ernest film that you find out that the couple in When the Wind Blows are also based on his parents which is quite interesting when you watch it and you see some of the comedy interplay between them. You can imagine that that is somebody retelling the kind of things that his parents got up to. It's produced by the people who did the Beatles film, Yellow Submarine. So there are quality animators that made the film and it tells the story of Jim and Hilda Bloggs, a retired couple who are preparing themselves for the impending war by building a shelter to the specifications laid out in the government-issued Protect and Survive pamphlet. The real pamphlet was sent out to you. UK households in the 70s and 80s and the film uses traditional animation but mixes it with stop motion and I think it does it to great effect. The scenes of destruction are fantastically done where it's able to pan around a stop motion set and then overlay the animated characters on top of it. So I think it does a fantastic job from the animation side, but it also injects a lot of humour in Jim's bumbling DIY while he's trying to build this shelter and Hilda's obliviousness to how dire the situation really is. But it's ultimately a sad film and it perfectly captures the percolating fear of war that the country was feeling at the time. The Cold War was at its height and there was a lot of concern that, you know, a war with Russia was possible and the film captures it fantastically. The soundtrack was released by Virgin Records in. 1986 and it split into two distinct parts. On one side of the record we had the score written by Pink Floyd's Roger Waters who performed the tracks with his Bleeding Heart Band and the score was predictably sombre but it also included a couple of big songs such as Tower of Faith which wasn't actually used in the film but before the film was shown in cinemas they played this song which kind of got people in the right frame of mind due to Waters' lyrics and the other song was Folded Flags which played over the end credits and it was another really poignant anti-war song but on the second side of the record we were treated to tracks from a number of big name artists such as David Bowie whose title song plays as the film begins. There were songs from Squeeze, Genesis, Paul Hardcastle and Hugh Cornwell from The Stranglers. In the film most of the tracks only get a few seconds whether they are short interludes or tracks played on the radio for a few seconds but as a record they fit together really nice and actually it's quite strange that for a film that's got such a sad message it's quite jolly so the two sides of the record are quite well juxtaposed I try to get the word juxtaposed into every podcast I hope you've noticed My standout track on the album is Roger Waters' Folded Flags It's a typical proggy rock song, but it's got some great anti-war lyrics, as Waters wonders how we put our lives in the hand of a second-rate actor, referring, of course, to US President at the time, Ronald Reagan. But it's the middle verse that really holds truest to me when he says, Hey, Joe, where are you going with that dogma in your head? You can prove your point, but your kids will still be dead. Bring down the curtain. The soap opera must surely close before the cold wind blows. And I think that's a fantastic statement of that fear that I mentioned earlier. And I think it's an absolutely wonderful film, and the soundtrack does it just as much justice as the fine animation does. And my rating for this soundtrack would be four out of five. So let's see what everybody else thinks.
1: Simon. Thanks, Gordon. That was well put about everything there, really. It was really well analysed. I enjoyed the film. I find it very poignant, and I've always enjoyed it. I love that scene that you say with the set, when the bomb goes off, and you see all different things, like the windmills getting destroyed, the train getting smashed off the bridge, and all the vibe but it's all just amazing how the animation portrays the actual violence of it. I completely agree with the Waters tracks, that Folding Flags is excellent. The standout track for me, is. I actually liked this track even before I knew it was in the film. I'm not a big fan of this band but my standout track is The Brazilian by Genesis. It's an instrumental which was on their '86 album the Invisible Touch. It features experimental sounds and effects which are quite different for the time and in the film it is the music that's on the radio just before the air attack warning sounds it cuts it off actually it's quite strange that they'd have that kind of thing on the radio but I think they just had it on to keep the radio going to listen to any attack warnings as it says in the Protect and Survive manual and funny enough it was actually used in an episode of Magnum PI and it was also used as the BBC coverage of the 1987 World Athletics Championships so wow. it has been used in other things as well but uh, yeah that was my standout track i like to yourself Gordon I would give it 4 out of 5 Excellent. Graham, what about
0: you? Well, interesting, I've never seen this film. but I listened to the soundtrack, and not having seen the film, it was quite an odd experience to listen to the music from it. Obviously, it's quite a different soundtrack, with it being from Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, and initially, like Simon, I was going to go with the Brazilian, which is a track I'm quite familiar with, from Genesis, of course, an instrumental track. And I used to like this song when I was younger, and it was nice to listen to it again. But on reflection, it hardly appeared in film. So I decided that my favourite track, like Gordon, and listening to the lyrics for it, is Folded Flags, which is, I think, a fantastic song and just sums up a lot of the fear and actually the absurdity of the situation back in the 80s as well, that basically had a B-movie actor leading the Americans. and I think it summed up the themes and the tone of the movie an awful lot and now obviously what I need to do is watch the film because I think it would be a nice experience to finally see this. Maybe not when I'm at a low ebb but it does sound a really interesting film and I think it's about time I saw it as well. Overall I thought the soundtrack was pretty solid. Maybe I'm slightly harsh on it because I haven't seen the movie so I don't have that linked effect to the movie but I would still give it a 3 out of 5
3: thanks Graeme I do think that you really should watch the film and one thing I noticed because I watched it again this week was just how much of a comedy it is the film's an hour and 20 minutes and the first hour are a flat out comedy the worry is there because you know there's a war about to happen and the bomb's going to drop at some point but it's played out just as a nice family comedy and it's only the last 20 minutes where it gets really sad so you know don't go into it thinking that you're going to come out depressed and wanting to slit your wrist I don't believe that's the case I do really recommend this film and at 80 minutes long anyone can find 80 minutes to watch a film of this quality Matt what's your
2: thoughts I think you will come out of it depressed but anyway let's move on <laughs> <laughs> I also like you Graham hadn't seen the film before listening to the soundtrack I listened to the soundtrack it's a pretty impressive lineup of big-name artists from the sort of art rock scene of the 80s and undoubtedly a good album if you like that kind of thing which I personally don't but I can still recognize that the songs were good it was much more upbeat than expected as already been mentioned although most of the upbeat songs are barely used in the film I did watch the film just to see how those upbeat songs fitted in and the answer is they basically don't they're just in there for a few seconds here and there the film does have some comedy moments in but I found it incredibly depressing and I won't ever be watching it again but at least I've experienced it the one time. It's a bit of a strange film but the best track for me anyway was one of the more upbeat songs. It was What Have They Done by Squeeze which whilst it is an upbeat song was still lyrically quite relevant to the subject matter. There is some sort of coverage of the whole war and nuclear themes in that song so that was pretty good. I was going to give the soundtrack three and a half stars until I watched the film I'm knocking half a star off for it barely using most of the songs on one side of the album so three stars from me also
3: okay so that gives us a score of 3.5 for when the wind blows soundtrack that puts it top of our leaderboard ahead of Groundhog Day from the previous show
0: and I think that's pretty fair.
2: Agreed. It was better than Groundhog Day. Not the film but the soundtrack.
3: I'd say the film too but
2: there you go. I like
0: them both. But yes. Okay, thank you guys. So that's the soundtrack, When the Wind Blows. Thank you Gordon. Next up we've got our nuclear related game which was chosen this episode by Simon and he chose Raid Over Moscow. So Simon do you want to tell us a bit about this game from the 80s?
1: Thanks Brian. Yeah, when it was coming to thinking about obviously a game of nuclear Destruction. I thought a few different games, your games like Balance of Power on your Mega ST and Windows and the Macs, and I thought, no, let's go for a bit of 8 bit action. I chose Red Over Moscow, which is a game by Access Software, published by US Gold on the Commodore 64 in 1984, and many other computers like the Stereo Spectrum and Atari 8 bits. Obviously released during the Cold War era, Raid Over Moscow is an action game. The player, who happens to be an American base pilot, has to stop three Soviet nuclear attacks on North America and then fight his way in to destroy a nuclear facility located in Moscow's Kremlin. According, actually, to the game storyline, the United States is unable to respond to the attack directly due to the dismantlement of its nuclear arsenal. So it's obviously playing the good guy here. The game will cause controversy at the time. It was famous in Finland. The Finnish parliament tried to get it banned, thinking it was an offensive to the Russians. Obviously, the Russians are right next to them, so <laughs> they thought they Try and be good about it and be a bit PC. But due to the resulting debate, it actually made it a top seller in Finland. The game was open with an alert about nuclear missile launches being detected from a Soviet city towards a certain North American city. So you begin in the hangar, you jump into your super duper space plane, fly the aircraft out the hangar, and go to the launch area. You do a scrolling shooter section where you go through the approach to the silo, destroying tanks, avoiding missiles, destroying buildings and an airfield and a helicopter at the end. Then you have to destroy the actual missile silo itself. Once destroyed, you go back to the orbiting launch platform, wait for the next strike. Once you've destroyed three sites, you then do an attack on a Moscow itself, in which you actually get through as a commando in a trench and you think it's the Kremlin. But I've actually found it is the Moscow State Historical Museum is the building that you're actually shooting at. You have to shoot soldiers on roofs either side and some at the end. And there's an annoying tank that can shoot you if you stand still for more than a few seconds. You can destroy some of the towers in the building, including the top ones, and make them fall down on the tank, which is quite fun. You have to blast some doors in the building. One of them is your entrance to get through to the Kremlin. This leads on to the third stage where you're in a reactor building with a floating robot which goes through track doors in the ground, dropping coolant into the reactor. You've got to use a Frisbee like the Tron games. You've got to throw them down, bounce them off the wall and hit the robot from behind. So you've got an angle pointer at the end where you have to try and do the angle, catch the robot, destroy one robot, a second robot appears which goes quicker. You can only hit it while it's dropping coolant into the reactor. You get a certain amount of discs. You have to destroy the two robots. If you're successful, the reactor explodes and you escape in your jet away from the scene. You can still end the game at that point. If you lose all your lives, once you've got to that room, the reactor will still explode and Moscow will still get destroyed, but you don't get away. All men died in action, it says at the end. It's an interesting concept. It's got a sort of different variation on each level. So that was the game we chose this month based on the theme of nuclear war. So what I'm going to do is go around the table and ask everyone what they thought when they played it. Graham, what did you think?
0: I played this back in the day on my Spectrum. I remember it got a crash-smash. So it was obviously quite well thought of. It reminded me an awful lot of Beachhead, which was also by US Gold. And as you say, Simon, it had lots of different types of game within one game. And this was quite rare at the time. And I remember it being quite a big thing, certainly Beachhead I loved as well. And I really liked Raid Over Moscow. Since then, I've played the Commodore 64 version for research for this podcast. And I think the Commodore 64 version probably edges it. It's probably better. And I've done a little bit of research on the internet as well. And looking at it, it's regarded as one of... The better early games on the Commodore 64. It's a little bit clunky in places, as you might expect with a over 30 year old game. But I think it still plays all right. It's basically just an action arcade game, isn't it? There's not really a lot of complexity to it. But I think the different styles of gameplay within it at the time, I remember thinking it was pretty good value for money. And I think it is probably one of the better games from US Gold of their sort of like mid 80s era. And also interestingly, playing it again, maybe I didn't realise it at the time, being quite young, but It does seem to definitely have a nice little Cold War vibe going on as well and creates quite a lot of atmosphere, which is quite difficult to do, obviously, with the primitive graphics of the time, especially on the Commodore 64, I think, as well, with the improved sound. So, yeah, I really enjoyed playing Raid Over Moscow again. I'm not saying I'd rush back to play it much anymore, but I think it's certainly one of the better games from the mid-80s. I'll give it 3.5 out of 5.
1: Thanks, Rome. That's interesting. You should mention Beachhead and things like that because it is the same guys that obviously programmed it. Access Software was Bruce and Mojicava, and they did things like leaderboard golf both beachhead games in bowling, called Temp Frame so yeah that's where the link is and I, just like to say, I still have my original copy of this which my aunt got me in 1984 for Christmas
3: <laughs> so I can still play it and it still works fine so that's always quite good oh. anyway never mind about that Gordon what are your thoughts well I know we were supposed to be playing the Commodore 64 version but I had loads of problems trying to get the Commodore version to work on my Mac I think part of the problem is that there's not many emulators for the Mac compared to PC but even worse is that the game you you to use f keys and there are no f keys on the mac and i couldn't work out what they'd been mapped to so i ditched the commodore 64 version and turned to my trusty spectrum and played that instead and for the most part the game's pretty identical and it's just some of the graphics that are changed which are understandable due to the graphical differences between spectrum and commodore but some of the levels are almost identical such as the kremlin apart from the garish colors on the spectrum version it's almost identical to the commodore but then others were very different like the silo level it's shockingly bad on the spectrum compared to the Commodore and and also the side-scrolling bombing run on Moscow it's pretty poor when you compare it it's not actually that bad for the time for a spectrum game but just when you put side by side comparison there definitely is a difference there so whilst i really enjoyed it but i definitely think the commodore one edges it but one of the things that i was really impressed with on a 48k spectrum was that it was all done on a single load because there are quite a number of levels and there's a lot of games that have got less levels and less difference between the levels and you have to do the multi-load so pausing the tape while you play it and and then finish a level, and then load the next level. So I was quite impressed that it's all on a single load. The game's repetitive, but thinking about back in the day, you didn't mind that so much, because we didn't have as much choice as we've got now. So actually, repeating levels was the norm. So I think that repetitiveness, Saka and Forgive... It's got plenty of levels. I was impressed by the difference between them. Absolutely glad somebody called out Beachhead, because that was exactly what I was thinking while I was playing it, particularly Beachhead 2. The only bit that baffled me, though, was the discs of Tron Beat a robot with a frisbee level. And I just didn't understand that being put in there because it was the Cold War. It was the fear of nuclear Armageddon. Everything is based in reality and then we've got throw a frisbee at a robot. and I just couldn't make sense of that. But I suppose we're talking 8-bit 80s games, so realistic narrative is probably stretching it a little bit too far. So I'll let that one slide. I thoroughly enjoyed this game. I've never played it before. Really, really enjoyed it. and I'm going to give it three and a half stars as well. Great, thanks very much, Gordon.
1: Yeah, in scene, is a bit different. You don't expect that. I remember mean, when I first played it, and I quite enjoyed that level.
2: Classic 8-bit abstract Absolutely. gameplay. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. it was bloody difficult, that level as <laughs> it well. Was solid, yeah.
1: One other little snippet of the fact is that when they reissued this game, after the finished Parliament thing, it was just called Raid that
3: over Moscow it was dropped and the hammer and sickle on the Commodore 64 title page went as well so during the Gulf War Massive Attack changed their name to just Massive because their PR people and the radio stations didn't want to put anything that was war related in their playlists so they just became Massive for a time <laughs> crazy
0: I did think it was a bit unfair in the Crash review which gave it a smash but one of the guys said that he thought that once you completed it you'd lose interest in it a little bit because it had nothing more to offer and I was thinking well yeah that's true isn't it really no, that's true of most games But well, you've completed it yeah. <laughs> it's not different...
3: like these days when you've got tons of side missions
1: and stuff. three difficulty levels and then you've got to try and beat your high score on different levels so it's a bit of longevity yeah? Matt what are your thoughts
2: well mostly I agree with what you guys have been saying I thought the graphics and sound were pretty decent for the era it was released nothing special but they were nicely done the first level the hangar level gets pretty tedious once you've mastered it having to do it over and over again is a bit unnecessary but I do like the strategy element of having to decide how many jets you want to send off knowing that if you mess up the next stage you might have to go back and deploy more and obviously there's a time limit before the missiles get to their destination once they've been launched. The side-scrolling second stage is the hardest I think but also the best part of the game. It's got a nice risk-reward gameplay as well where you can fly low or you can pop up and shoot the cruise missiles but then another one might come behind you and hit you before you can duck back down below the level that they can fly at. The only thing with that level was the controls were a bit odd where you side-scroll but when you push left and right it moves the ship up and down the screen basically because you're side scrolling so that was a bit bizarre to get used to once I got used to it that was okay as well The next level, the shooting the silos bit is really easy and just gives you a chance to recover lost jets if you need them by shooting the non-primary silos. If you've got lots of time left, you can just keep shooting the little plane that comes on there and getting 100 points over and over and over again. So if you want to milk your score, that's one of the places to do it. The bazooka stage outside the Kremlin was pretty easy, but really tedious go on for ages if you don't get the timing right of destroying all the enemies so that there's none on the screen because that's what you had to do before you could get into the inside bit and the final robot frisbee stage as you said is a bit odd for the end of the game but it was clever nicely implemented as well but it was hard and I never got past that I never completed it it drove me a bit mad to be honest I don't know if anyone found this because it wasn't that difficult a game but if you fail to destroy a base before the missiles reach their target but you've still got some jets left then the game isn't over but you lose all the points you've got up to that point so that's definitely an incentive to get it right early on if I was going to make improvements to it I'd say less time spent in the hangar at the beginning I think launching one plane is enough really the kremlin stage again was a bit over long I'd give a bonus for remaining time on the stages where you've got a time limit, because that would help with the scoring mechanics of it. And one question, why do the missiles dispatched by the bases suddenly disappear when the bases are destroyed? You know, they're already in the air <laughs> heading towards their targets. Surely it would make more sense if the time limit was how long you got until the bases launch, and then if they launch they could have had another level where you've got to try and intercept the missiles. So those are things I might have done QA-wise if I'd been doing the testing on that game back in the early 80s. But overall, really good game for its time lots of variety different gameplay mechanics hampered a bit by the repetitive and tedious nature of the two stages I played it on an emulator but I would like to get a real copy of it for my Commodore 64 and have a go with a real joystick because I think that would make it more enjoyable so three and a half stars from me as well
1: thanks Matt this is one of the games I've had since the day so it's a lot of nostalgia for me in this game I've always loved it and I can play it really well even whatever level it is so I know how it works and over the years I've always liked it so I'm going to give it four out of five We've totted up the scores from each member of the Moody News team and it averages out at 3.6, which puts it top of our games chart. It's better than Home Alone 2. That isn't saying much. Right, as we've all played the game, we'll just go around and do what high scores we got. Graham, what was your high score?
0: 10. <laughs>
1: I will say, listeners, that Graham hasn't actually had a chance to play it, so he's got a default 10. Well, so I played it, I just out. didn't
0: make a note of my high score.
3: Gordon, what was your high score? well I'm not sure if it counts because I was playing the Spectrum version not the Commodore 64 but let's just assume that the mechanics are exactly the same and the difficulty is exactly the same and I got 190,850 excellent that's a really good
2: score I can assure you those scorings aren't the same because you don't get multiples of 50 points on the Commodore 64 version
3: how do so you, you know can... you didn't finish it you might get 50 points bonus at the end
2: oh ok right ok yeah. <laughs> well anyway I got 107,400 and I had to milk the game a lot I got to the end with a robot but I couldn't kill him so Moscow blew up while I was still in the base so I didn't get the big bonus at the end Though, so, yeah, not good enough.
1: Well, I obviously play the game a lot and know how it works and you do milk it you, you get quite good bonuses for shooting those cruise missiles. It makes that scrolling shooting area a little bit harder because you've got to swoop down and get the tanks and stuff and sometimes you just misjudge it and hit one of the towers but I managed to get a high score on the easy level on the Commonwealth Street for 158,400 and actually kill the robot and get out the base as well but I only had two men left at the end so obviously Gordon's our champion of raid Ooh. over Moscow.
0: Dubious champion. <laughs> next up we have our three of the best section for this episode the movie Musers are choosing their favorite explosions from the movies so here we go your three most memorable explosions keep it clean please boys and first of all gordon In third
3: place on my list, I've got Terminator 2. Whether it was a dream or a premonition, Sarah Connor witnessing the nuclear apocalypse was a brilliantly shot scene and a frightening vision. As skins burnt off bodies, ground is scorched, buildings collapsed. It was absolutely brilliant. And it was one of the highlights of an absolute brilliant film. In second place, I've gone for The Dark Knight and the hospital scene. I just love the absurdness of Heath Ledger as the Joker wearing a nurse's uniform with his smudged makeup walking away and he's really disgruntled because his detonator isn't working and he's clicking and clicking and clicking and then finally it does go off and he just shrugs and carries on walking as the building just collapses behind him I thought that was absolutely genius and apparently the detonator not working was all Heath Ledger's idea he was supposed to just walk away press it it explodes but it was him who put that comedy bit in there and I think that's fantastic but Quite surprisingly, probably, in first place, I've got Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. It may be a terrible film, but the scene combined the best aspects of my third and second choices... It's nuketown, so despite it being a testing exercise, the destroying of a mock town looked every bit as real as the one in Terminator 2, and just like in The Dark Knight, it contains some really good humour, with Indy hiding in a fridge to protect himself from the blast. And it's also got a brilliant mushroom cloud, and who doesn't love a good mushroom cloud?
0: Thank you, Gordon. A couple of appropriate explosions there, given our theme. Matt, your choices, please.
2: Okay, well, none of mine are nuclear-related explosions, but in third place, I've gone for the opening scene of Lethal Weapon 3, where Riggs is trying to defuse a bomb in a car park and fails. It's got the great line, because there's a stray cat in there. Just as Riggs sets off the bomb and makes the timer go a lot faster, he says, get the cat, and him and Murtaugh leg it out of the building, and the building blows up behind them and it's all the better because they really did blow the building up. It was actually in Florida, and it was an old city building that was scheduled for demolition, but the movie company paid for the demolition and obviously caught it on film, so the explosion there was a genuine explosion at the beginning of that film. In second place, I've gone for Die Hard. All of the die-hard films have some decent explosions in, but I've gone for in the first film the scene where the terrorists are attacking the SWAT team and John McClane improvises a bomb with some C4 nails, an office chair, and a PC monitor and throws it down an elevator shaft. Geronimo, motherfucker! And in first place, I've gone for *Return of the Jedi*. The second Death Star is destroyed by the Millennium Falcon. And the explosion chases them out of the structure where they barely escape. And in fact, in the original ending, they didn't escape. It was redone so that the Millennium Falcon did escape from the Death Star. And obviously it signifies the end of the Empire, or so we thought, until Episode 7. And a fitting conclusion to the original trilogy, even if it was a bit of a rehash of the first film. Okay, well
0: my choice is my third choice is also from Die Hard and it's also the scene where John McLean has a lot of fun with some putty and a old style computer monitor, chucks it down the elevator shaft. What I liked about this is just the comedy that's played with it, as he's like looking down the shaft as it falls, wondering what's going to happen. And then when all of a sudden it explodes and starts coming up the shaft, he's going, oh, shit, I better move out of the way now. And just the effect of the explosion outside as well. I just think it's just incredible. It's like a multi-tier explosion. And then obviously there's the comedy that happens afterwards with the glass. My second one is from Deep Impact. And actually in deep impact, unlike Armageddon, a fairly large asteroid did actually hit the Earth. Not a Earth killer one, but one that was powerful enough to cause an awful lot of destruction. And to me, I don't think it's a great film, but just the emotional impact, obviously a lot of the characters that are introduced for the film die for this asteroid hitting. And it's got quite an emotional punch to it and it shows in quite graphic detail the destruction that this causes. But my number one choice is a much smaller explosion, but one that I just thought was quite not at the time and it's always made me a little bit nervous of swimming pools since then. In Lethal Weapon 2, the bad guys fight back against the police and they go around killing various police officers. And in one scene, one of the police officers, she's killed when she goes for her usual morning dip and steps up onto the diving board of her swimming pool. One jump, bang, game over for her. I just think that was quite a novel explosion, obviously not a huge explosion, but one that I really enjoyed in a film that I really like as well. So that's my three. Simon, over to you to reveal your three best explosions. Right, number
1: three on my list is the classic puppet extravaganza, that is Thunderbirds. It's the explosion at the start of Thunderbirds. It's just iconic to me. Love the series. Still watch them now, and I just love it. we get got all the start, introducing all the characters, and then just get that massive explosion of that oil refinery at the end. My second choice is the 1996 disaster thriller film, Daylight, starring Sylvester Stallone. I love the explosion in this. It's the crux of the film. The car crashes into these lorries carrying some highly flammable explosive material within the Lincoln Tunnel. The massive explosion, all the destruction of the cars, the fire comes out the vents above ground. And I just think that's an amazing explosion at the start of that film my top one is independence day the time runs out jeff Goldblum realizes it's about to attack and these motherships destroy cities by being over one of the iconic buildings the one that i am talking about is washington dc you see the white house going with the helicopters just about to take off with the vice president in it and then the bit i love is a bit when air force one just about takes off from the airport and he's getting literally the tail of it. it's almost in the flames as it escapes it's just a really great scene as you see it especially from above you can see the fire coming up behind it, and it just about flies fast enough to get away from it so 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 with all the different explosions and that, the Washington scene is my favourite.
0: Thank you, Simon. So we've all had a vote and I think about our favourite explosion. We can't vote for our own number one choices, but we can vote for everybody else's. And the overall winner with three votes is Independence Day. The official best explosion in the world ever. Thank you, guys. Over next to our classic scene, which this month is being chosen by Gordon.
3: Okay. As Donald Trump has just been sworn in as the 45th president of the United States, Britain's started its divorce proceedings with Europe and fundamentalism continues to infect the free world. It feels entirely appropriate to get one of the planet's foremost theologians to deliver a unifying rally call that we would all do well to heed. So I've once again turned to my own personal mentor, who, after not only defeating the Iron Giant in a historic mano a mano gladiatorial battle, also wins over a hostile Soviet crowd, delivering a speech of unity that even gets Gorbachev and his Politburo on their feet to applaud. So for this show's classic scene, I've chosen those poignant closing moments of the superb Rocky Four.
0: I came here tonight. I didn't know what to expect. When I came this evening, my i seen a lot of people hating me, and I didn't know what to feel about that, so I guess I didn't like
2: you much none either.
0: <laughs> During this fight, i seen a lot of changing.
2: The way
0: you felt about me, in the way I felt about you.
2: In here, there
0: were two guys killing each other, but I guess that's better than 20 million. But what I was trying to say is that if I can change, Я думаю, что каждый тоже изменился сегодня. Вы можете измениться. Can каждый может измениться. To my kid who should be home sleeping. Merry Christmas, kid! You can see what you're gonna stop. Okay, next on to our big question for this episode and this one was brought up quite interestingly we were talking about an old film from the 80s that one movie muser had recently seen and didn't particularly like it and a lot of people do love this film and his judgement was called into question but it did bring in this big question which was quite an interesting one and that is does nostalgia cloud our judgement when it comes to remembering old movies and particularly those old movies that we watched in our youth the movie that brought this up was Labyrinth which Matt watched and wasn't particularly impressed with so that's it the big question does nostalgia cloud our judgment of the movies we watch when we're younger Simon what are your thoughts on this
1: yeah, I definitely think it does, it's not just in movies, I think Nostalgia and its accompanying Rose Tim spectres, as one might say, it just seems to be our fondness for those heady house-fitting days of our youth, A time when we were full of optimism and life is exciting. Then we grew up, obviously, and then it was more like life maybe, for some of us, didn't turn out quite as we wanted or expected, and we fell into ruts, marriages, kids, and all the rest of it that goes with adulthood. And Nostalgia it was about looking back at with affection on the lazy, crazy days when we were free of the worries of the world. Life is fun, and as much we associate the films, TV games, music with our carefree time, and always looking fondly at those times with me it was the 80s and the start of, really of the blockbuster movies great tv shows computer games became big music was good in the 80s we embraced all new forms of media and i think we were at the forefront of the media explosion and its birth in a way of all the areas we take for granted today so i'm so grateful that i was a teenager in the 80s and i've always hold them dear to my heart rightly or wrongly nostalgia is part of my makeup and most of us will always override our good taste chips in the name of it so yeah it does cloud our judgment but i don't think that's always a bad thing
0: Okay, thank you, Simon. Interesting. Gordon, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I'll just
3: echo what Simon said in that the 80s were awesome. We're all of a similar age, so the 80s was probably the key period for all of us. And anybody who lived through the 80s, certainly as a teen or even slightly younger than a teen, if you didn't love them, then there's something wrong with you. So, of course, nostalgia definitely plays a big part and makes us believe things that maybe aren't true. And the biggest example of that for me, if I'm thinking negatively, is the Goonies so many people gush about how great the film is and you only have to re-watch it to see that it's a standard and pretty basic family comedy and not a good one and it's absolutely a case of you just had to be there at the right time and at the right age to have seen it the first time so as far as I'm concerned a film like The Goonies is all nostalgia and if you weren't there or you didn't see it at the time you see it for what it really is which is a pretty substandard film so I'm sure there are plenty of examples where nostalgia's clouded my judgment, I can't personally think of any but I'm sure other people can and I suppose it's in the eye of the beholder to decide whether I'm being clouded by it because I'd never know it for myself. But yeah, of course, nostalgia is almost as important as whether the film was any good in the first place.
0: Thank you Gordon, Yeah, some interesting points there that you and Simon have mentioned I mean, I was thinking more with this along the lines of why we have this nostalgia and I think the key thing about it really and I've already touched upon this briefly was back in the 80s, certainly in the early 80s not many of us would have even had access to video recorders so until then you had to rely on what was on TV and what you went to see at the cinema so our exposure to films and TV and media was nowhere near the volume that it is today so what you saw, you kind of took on Facebook value and you had to enjoy it's almost like going back and playing old video games now younger people just bigger belief how we could get any enjoyment out of it but we did back in the day and i think a lot of that was because we simply didn't know any better and that's what we had it was as simple as that so i think when you watch something as a youth especially with an uncynical mind as well you gain a lot of enjoyment from watching anything and that enjoyment glosses over i think a lot of the film shortcomings so say for instance you're watching the goonies and yeah it's just a basic action comedy film like you say Gordon but you don't really take it for that, you take it for a bit more than that because you're enjoying it so much and you have no frame of reference like we have today, like you've seen dozens of films better than that but since then, but at the time you hadn't I think that is the reason why we look back on things so memorably whether that is good or bad, I think it's always good for people to re-watch films I mean going back to Labyrinth, I was quite surprised how much Matt didn't enjoy it but it is kind of a kids film so maybe that shouldn't have been surprising and I watched it with two children and they both loved it and I must admit I enjoyed it a lot but obviously I can see that the special effects and the puppetry is pretty rubbish in places and it's a bit nonsensical as well but I just look back at films like that and think there is still a lot to admire in them but you've got to remember that anyone that saw it back in the 80s as a kid with those uncynical eyes is probably going to idolise it maybe a bit more than they should so it's definitely something that comes into play but like Simon said whether it's a good or bad thing i don't don't honestly know if people just watch movies when they're younger and enjoy them and they want to carry on saying that they enjoyed them and their classics then that's up to them at the end of the day. Matt what, what are your thoughts?
2: I'll start by saying Labyrinth for me I never really watched it when I was a kid I think I've probably seen it once in the late 80s so I have no affinity towards it and so watching it with virtually a fresh pair of eyes in 2017 the acting from the human characters in particular is diabolical I didn't enjoy the music the puppetry I actually think has aged pretty well but that was about it there's other films that fall into that category for me the films that I thought were great when I was a kid and I've watched them again since and found they weren't that good The Goonies is one of those that was on my list Never Ending story is another one which i absolutely loved as a kid and it just doesn't look too good anymore so nostalgia doesn't actually cloud my judgment on those i've reassessed those with my 40 year old eyes and found that they were left wanting somewhat that said there's the flip side as well where there's things that i never saw in the 80s and perhaps you could approach them with a cynical mind nowadays and feel that they weren't as good as people were making out but i've actually found i really enjoyed them and an example of that is the breakfast club which i never saw until i was probably in my 30s and i think it's a great film you know it's considered the classic but i could easily have seen that as just a, a bad teen comedy 30 years down the line but i still think it's a good film and of course there's classics that are good like back to the future star wars ghostbusters they're good films they're not classics because you saw them with those nostalgic eyes they are just good films so it varies i think some people are more clouded than others but there's no doubt that there's some films that i really love that aren't as good as i think they are so the answer like the rest of you is that yes i judgment is definitely clouded by nostalgia
0: okay thank you matt so the answer to the big question do we think nostalgia clouds our judgment when it comes to remembering old movies gordon yes or no yes matt yeah simon yes i think it does as well so the answer to the big question the movie muse crew says yes Thanks, guys. That concludes this episode of Movie Muse podcast. Now I'm going to hand over to Simon, who is the host of the next episode and is going to tell us what it's all about.
1: Thanks, Graeme. For next show, we have two choices and I will give you the names of the two different themes for you guys to choose. We have cash and corral and g'day sport. Okay, so Graeme, what one sort of more interesting to you?
0: I'm intrigued by your first one. I'm going to go with Cash or Corelli.
1: Matt.
2: I'm going to go with G'day Sport.
1: Okay, one each. Gordon. So
3: that leaves me to pick G'day Sport.
1: Right, that's two to one for G'day Sport. I'm actually slightly disappointed because I actually think I prefer the first one. But never mind, that's the choice here in the Movie Muse team we're going to batter up get our helmets on, shin pads down, socks take to the pitch to tackle the world of sports from films, TV and games from the early days of men running around very fast in long shorts and moustaches to the latest sporting blockbusters we will blow the whistle on all things sporting and take on all comers in the halftime orange eating and finding the soap in the bath competitions the film club choice for this particular theme is Slapshot which is a 1977 comedy film directed by George Roy Hill and starring Paul Newman and Michael Ontkein which picks a minor league hockey team that resorts to violent play to gain popularity in a declining factory town
0: Thank you Simon That just about wraps things up, thank you so much for listening I'd like to thank Gordon, Matt and Simon for their contributions Thank you guys, don't forget to check out our Facebook page for our choices for the next podcast and also our Twitter feed and website www.moviemuse.net So, until the next time stay well everybody and Don't press that red button.